During today's episode, I'm going to be telling you about a new podcast I think you should be checking out. It's called Uneffing the Republic, but they don't censor their words or their politics, so hear me out mid-show when I tell you all about it. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the costs of the Olympic Games, including financial, ethical, moral, and social. Private profits come at the hands of public investment, disruption of communities, curtailing of rights, and this year, extensive health risks. Clips today are from CNBC, Today Explained, Citations Needed, The Majority Report, Time Magazine, All In With Chris Hayes, TYT Sports, Burn It All Down, By Any Means Necessary, and Business Insider. In 1896, the Olympic Games became a truly international competition as it modernized becoming what it looks like today, a biannual event with summer and winter games. In its infancy, the games were relatively small. Host cities would use public funds for the games with ticket sales generating revenue to offset costs. The very first Olympic Games were in 1896. No women were um, able to compete in those games. And certainly over time now, as we look as, as recent at 2018, the games look a lot different, feel a lot different. This is Dr. Nicole Forrester. She's a former Olympic athlete in track and field who competed in the 2008 Beijing Games. The Olympics is like the, the pinnacle or the Everest of, of that sporting experience, both for the athlete and also for uh, the viewers at, at home. Since the 1960 Games in Rome, both the Summer and Winter Games saw overrun cost on their estimates. Things began to get dire in 1976 with the Montreal Games. Andrew Zimbalist is an author and economics professor at Smith College in Northampton. One of the things he specializes in is the economics of the Olympic Games. Famously, the mayor of Montreal declared that the Olympics, this was before the games started, but he declared the Olympics can no more have a, a cost overrun than a man can have a baby. Well, it turned out that the Montreal Olympics had a cost overrun that was almost tenfold uh, over the initial price. The Canadian government shelled out $1.5 billion in overrun costs in the Montreal Games, well over their estimated cost of $120 million. The Canadian government finally paid off that debt in 2006. At that time in Canada, we were under a, a cultural war of sorts. The other issue that happened is the price of steel had skyrocketed. And then the year before the games were hosted, you had workers walk off on a strike, which then caused more of a delay. And, and then again, added to the cost itself of hosting these games. By 1984, no country wanted to host the games. Only the United States kept their hats in the ring for the 84 games in Los Angeles. It became the first and only Summer Olympic Games to have an operating surplus of $215 million. The reason? As the only bidder, Los Angeles had the leverage to negotiate its contract with the IOC, and the infrastructure was already there. Together with the fact that Los Angeles is the second largest city in the United States, arguably the entertainment capital of the United States, meant that they didn't have to do hardly any building. Basically, everything was in place. It was little building they had to do, but not very much. There was such a, a surge in revenue um, that was derived through the media cover itself that actually went straight to the Los Angeles games. And so like the IOC realized, okay, now we should make sure that we ensure that we get that big cut of the, the media revenue that's generated. 
The IOC saw the LA Games as an opportunity to restructure their television revenue distribution. Before, the IOC auctioned its TV rights to the game's local hosts, who were able to keep about 90% of the revenues generated. In the 1980 Moscow Games, the IOC only took about 10% of the revenue. But all of that changed in 1984, when the IOC took 33% of the LA Games TV revenue. Over the years, broadcast revenue for the IOC increased. The 1984 Summer and Winter Games generated $287 million and $103 million, respectively. Fast forward to 2016 and 2018, Rio generated $2.9 billion, and Pyeongchang generated $1.4 billion. But it wasn't just the TV revenues that skyrocketed. So did the percentage that the IOC takes. Broadcast rights revenues for the 2016 games and 2018 games were 73%. Over its lifetime, the Olympics has grown as more and more nations participate and more sports are added, creating the massive competition we see today. We're seeing there's more sports that have been added to the program plan. So if we look at the games in 1896 and how many sports were there and versus what it's going to look like for Tokyo, it is uh, night and day difference and, and vastly larger for, for these games. But as the games become more expansive, the price tag of hosting the games becomes more of a burden. Before a host city begins constructing elaborate venues, putting in a bid to host the games itself can cost tens of millions of dollars. All these cities would come together and would bid, and then it would be narrowed down to say like five other cities, and then you've got people within the IOC visiting, doing these site visits to help decide like what where, where we're gonna go and then it get, narrows down to like two cities and then so on. This used to be a very costly um, process to do with no with a, a very small guarantee that city would be successful through the bidding process. Just take the Tokyo bid to host the 2016 Summer Games. $150 million was spent by the Japanese Olympic Committee for expensive consulting firms, city planning, event organizing, architecture firms, and much more. Eventually, that bid went to Rio. However, Tokyo did have a successful bid for the 2020 Games, but spent an additional $75 million for an updated evaluation and planning. Winning an Olympic bid comes with a steep price tag. The largest single facility that has to get built is, is the Olympic Village. This is a, for the Summer Games. This is the village that has to accommodate 11,000 athletes and about 5,000 additional coaches and trainers. In addition to having the lodging, you need to have athletic training facilities. You need to have tracks. You need to have weight rooms. You need to have other facilities. You need to have restaurants. You need to have entertainment facilities for the athletes. You need to have clinics, medical clinics. So you're actually building a village. You know, this is a full, full service village. So what else needs to get built? Then you have the Olympic Stadium, infrastructure, road infrastructure, telecommunications infrastructure, also potentially billions of dollars there. Security costs these days easily run one and a half to two billion dollars. The average cost overruns for hosting the games is 252%. For the Rio games, it was estimated in 2017 that $13.1 billion went into hosting the Olympics, well over its initial $2.8 billion budget. Economists, however, put that actual number somewhere north of $20 billion in 2018. An estimated $2.06 billion actually went towards sports-related venues, while an estimated $8.2 billion went towards legacy builds, or builds intended to live well beyond the Olympics' three-week life cycle. 
The legacy builds went towards things like an updated infrastructure, highways, a renovated port, and cleaning the polluted Guanabara Bay. Of that $8.2 billion, the lay-riddled subway line cost an estimated $2.98 billion, and the renovation of Puerto Marvala was an estimated $4.2 billion. To meet the IOC's requirement of 40,000 rooms for accommodations, Rio had to lay out the construction of an additional 15 to 18,000 rooms, intended to be used after the games as luxury apartments. Nearly five years after the games, most of those long-term use buildings sit vacant. They're also expensive to maintain. About $14 million a year goes into maintenance costs for Rio venues. Rio's famed Moroccan Stadium, built in 1950, which held the opening ceremonies of the 2016 Summer Games, had its power cut off in 2017, after falling behind on payments during a tendency dispute from the Games. After two months of no power and left vacant, the stadium reopened for football matches and concerts. In all cases, and in all cities, not just Rio, the reason why the venues didn't exist before the Games is because it didn't make sense to build it. Economically, nobody wanted to build it. A lot of what we're seeing in Tokyo is actually not necessarily Tokyo problems, but they're Olympic problems that get imported into each and every host city. It just happens to be Tokyo in this case and under pandemic conditions. And the pandemic continues to be a real source of tension around these games. With the Tokyo Olympics just over 10 weeks away, IOC President Thomas Bach canceling a planned trip to Japan, citing the surge of COVID-19 cases there, with a state of emergency recently extended in several parts of the country. The Olympics are experiencing major mayhem right now. Medical officials in Japan and across the world are clamoring for the Olympics to be canceled. Meanwhile, the International Olympic Committee and local Tokyo organizers are saying that the games will in fact go on in Japan, where cases are surging, where they're in the midst of their fourth wave. Less than 2% of the population is fully vaccinated. And the build-up continues to be dominated by two questions. Will they go ahead and should they go ahead? There's a lot of pushback in Japan as well as around the world from medical professionals, scientists, and even some athletes are starting to wonder aloud whether it's right to push ahead with the Olympics. Tennis star Naomi Osaka represents Japan. Here's what she said when asked whether it was appropriate for the Games to go ahead. For me, I'm an athlete, and of course my immediate thought is that I'd want to play the Olympics, but as a human, I would say are aren't healthy, and if they're not feeling safe, then it's definitely a really big cause for concern. At the end of the day, this is all about the athletes. How are the IOC and, and Tokyo planning on keeping them safe? Is it one big bubble, a hmm. bunch of small bubbles? They're still working out how they're going to do their bubble system. But no matter how you slice it, it's sort of going to be like one L bubble grande because there's 11,000 <laughs> athletes that are going to be coming in. You're going to have to figure out a way. There's been a lot of concern from athletes as to how they will be housed. Will they be housed by sport? That way, if there's a breakout of COVID, one sport could be sacrificed and maybe have that canceled for these Olympics, as sad as that would be for those athletes. One other thing, they are limiting the amount of people that they're going to allow into the country. Previously, there was supposed to be in the neighborhood of 180,000 people, officials that would come into Japan for these Olympics. Tokyo organizers have announced that instead of 180,000, it'll be more like 90,000 or fewer. So for some, 
that is comfort for others. They're like, what? 90,000 people? And that does not include the athletes, which is about 11,000 for the Olympics, 15,000 when you include the Paralympics. And so tens of thousands of people will be coming into the country. They have measures in place, such as not using the public transportation system if you're an athlete, trying to buy your meals uh, takeaway instead of going into restaurants, and basically staying within the confines of the Olympic Village, having testing all the time, every single day, and those sort of measures that are designed to make it a bit safer space for Olympians and everybody else in Japan. And we know people in Tokyo are, are protesting these games. Do we have any idea how many people are for or against them? Well, back when Japan won the Olympics in 2013 the from the International Olympic Committee, the they were popular. That the games of the 32nd Olympiad in 2020 are awarded to the city of Tokyo. Yeah! But over time, they've become less so with the spending that has happened. Originally, the Olympics were supposed to cost $7.3 billion, and instead they're costing more like $30 billion. And so slowly over time, support has eroded. But really the thing that chipped away the most support for these Olympics among the general population in Japan is the rise of the coronavirus. Around 60% of the population in Japan prefers full throttle cancellation of the Olympics. Hmm. Let's move on. We've sunk our costs, we've spent our money, and we're willing to take the losses and move on to a safer day. Wow. So the majority of people in Japan would prefer they just take the L, so to speak. Has the IOC commented specifically on the fact that the majority of the people in Japan don't actually want these games to take place this summer? You know, they have, actually. There was one of the spokespeople for the International Olympic Committee, a gentleman by the name of Mark Adams. As with all organizations, we have to pay attention to public opinion, but not be totally driven by it. And I'm sure you can imagine how that went over in Japan. <laughs> what do you think is keeping the IOC sort of committed to this line that they've drawn in the sand here, that, you know, they're going to hold these games in the summer of 2021 come... Hell or pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I'm only being a little facetious when I say there are three reasons, money, money, and money. And it's important for us to note that more than 90% of the International Olympic Committee's revenues are derived from two sources, broadcasting revenues, as well as corporate sponsorship revenues. 73% of the IOC's revenue come from broadcasters, big-time broadcasters like NBC and smaller ones around the world that pay for the rights to broadcast the games. The striking vista of Copacabana Beach on a Friday evening in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, where tonight... Another 18% comes from corporate sponsors like Coca-Cola, Alibaba, Panasonic, and other big behemoth corporations. Visa, proud sponsor of the Olympic Games, and the only card accepted there. Where you see a little bit of friction is between the Japanese organizers and the International Olympic Committee when it comes to whether there should be fans in the stands. They've already said that overseas spectators will not be allowed to enter the country and attend the Olympics. But it's still an open question as to whether they're going to allow people in Japan to attend the Games. Why it's a little bit frictive between those two groups, the International Olympic Committee and the local Tokyo organizers, is because this was supposed to be a big source of revenue for the local organizing committee. Around $800 million was supposed to go to the local organizers. 
And so, yeah, money really talks. And I think that's a good place to start to understand why we're trying to push ahead or why the International Olympic Committee is trying to push ahead with an Olympics in the midst of a global health pandemic. Apart from the money, is there a certain sense of pride on the line here for the city, for the games, for the IOC? There's definitely some pride within Japan, people I've spoken with there, who would be proud to pull off this major, complicated, audaciously impractical event in the midst of a pandemic. And also, I think it's important to note the geopolitical factors involved here. Less than nine months down the road, Beijing is slated to host the 2022 Winter Olympics. And being somewhat of a geopolitical adversary to Japan, that gives Japan a little bit of extra incentive to try to pull these games off, not just hand the torch right over to their geopolitical foe. You may be feeling a bit down on the Olympics right about now, but... Perhaps talk of them has also reminded you to get a bit active this summer, in which case you're going to want to do it with the right socks. I personally have been wearing Bomba socks for years, and most recently, I've really been enjoying a new set of their performance socks that I just got. Bomba's performance socks are stitched with special moisture-wicking yarn and temperature-regulating vents that allow cool air to flow in and prevent overheating perfect for active summers, plus a whole bunch of other features like extra cushion in all the right places, arch support, and their stay-up technology. Now, I go for the ankle-length style, but even when they're that low, they still need to stay up. And of course, they come in a bunch of styles and specific design features, so you can find the one that's best for you, all while knowing that for every pair of Bomba's performance socks you buy, they donate a pair to someone in need, which is my favorite part. They've donated over 45 million pairs so far. So go to bombas.com best today and get 20% off your first order. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash best for 20% off. Bombas.com slash best. Communities, state and local governments getting involved in what we, we sort of call bum fights, where we're kind of looking for scraps by these large corporations and billionaires and sports owners. And if you've ever studied this, and obviously we're, the, the recent news is the context of Amazon's uh, second headquarters, where you have 30 cities that are kind of falling over each other to an, an increasingly, I think, degenerate corporate offers. That this scam was, I think, not invented by, but perfected by sports owners and sports teams. I want you to talk a little bit about that, what the general formula of this is, maybe some of the more egregious examples, and how you view the media's role in kind of going along with this. First and foremost, I mean, you're absolutely correct in terms of the way sports and the sports stadium scam, and I'll put the Olympics on that as well, different cities bidding for the Olympics, of this idea of creating... I mean, this kind of corporatocracy where corporations dictate public policy and dictate where tax dollars. And I think sports more than anything has really primed the pump nationally for this idea that, you know, debt is to be collectivized, but public money is to be privatized. And we've seen this time and again. In some of the ways that are similar to Amazon, you see this. I mean, when, for example, in the in the Olympic bid for first the 2024 and now the 2028 Olympics, where you had Boston and Los Angeles and other cities as well, all trying to put together packages that would be appealing first to the U.S. Olympic Committee and then the International Olympic Committee. And the things that they were promising, I mean, were just so outrageous. I mean, basically like the tearing down 
yeah, that's an important thing to say is that it's not just about they're promising public money. It's that they're also promising to eradicate neighborhood. They're promising to reshape entire communities. And they're promising to step up like national security state features in these different cities in terms of surveillance, in terms of the presence of homeland security in unprecedented ways. And they're doing this all festooned in the ribbons of like the Olympics. So a city like Boston or Los Angeles, you know, these are, are liberal cities with, you know, pretty active civic bases. If they just went to those people and just said, hey, we, we have this plan. We're not going to tell you what it is, but it's going to end up with homeland security on every corner, ice on every corner, cameras to watch where you're going. And, oh, your rents will go up or your neighborhood is going to be torn down. What do you guys think of that plan? You know, people would say, wow, we're going to destroy you now right. uh, for even bringing that to the table. But when they say, hey, we got the Olympics. How does that sound? That Then it becomes something that's a lot easier to sell. And amazing props, first of all, to the people of Boston who didn't fall for this okie doke and fought it and got the city leaders of Boston to actually pull their bid. And now the people in Los Angeles, I mean, I was out there and they're organizing incredibly because it's unbelievable how LA has, like, has allocated and earmarked funds and operational plans for the 2028 game. So basically they're you know, they're telescoping what the local economy is going to be like and what they're going to be able to be to, to do for something that's 11 years off. I mean, it, it's absolutely absurd. It's a contrived a shock doctrine, right? You're instead of waiting for a hurricane, you sort of force a hurricane by saying the Olympics or the World Cup. And vis-a-vis the national security state, one of the more egregious examples of this was in uh, Brazil. They literally had like extra constitutional zones right, mm-hmm. where the law didn't apply. Right. South Africa had the same thing, right? You had the kind of 48-hour trials of people. So in America, it's, there's also similar features. You know, they, they throw First Amendment rights out the window. There's other kind of security measures. There's a whole nother sort of set of issues regarding the Tokyo Olympics because of COVID. But in many respects, the relentless, I guess, insistence on having these games when you have some of the top medical experts in the country saying this is a bad idea, the the same forces are creating that dynamic in addition to all the other issues that exist with the Olympics. So so let's start with just sort of the the history of the games and the the problems with the games that we should say this is not about the athletes per se, right? This is about everything else that comes with it. Absolutely. That's a great place to start, really, because there's no question that athletes are what make the Olympics what they are. Were it not for the athletes, there'd be no Olympics. But then you have this group of people from the International Olympic Committee who are the organizers of the Games, who essentially use athletes like human shields to create these monstrous events that do incredible damage to the communities that host the events, whether it's Tokyo or whether it's London, whether it's Vancouver, or whether it's a future host like Paris or Los Angeles. And so the longer history of the Olympics really does help us make sense of this when you go all the way back to the beginning of the Games and think that they were started by a baron, an aristocrat from France named Baron Pierre de Coubertin, who got together a bunch of other barons and dukes and counts and really created this 
elite affair. And ever since then, the Olympic chorus has sung with an upper class accent. And it definitely does that today. And that explains a lot of what happens and why it might not make sense to your listeners and viewers, why we're pressing ahead with an optional sporting spectacle during a global health pandemic. Well, if you think about the fact that it's elites with money on the line, including the International Olympic Committee and NBC, which is hosting the games here on the broadcasting networks of the United States, then it starts to make a little bit more sense. All right. So let's talk. I mean, how much money are we talking about? Like, I mean, how much money in when it's we're talking about an extraordinary amount of money and then lay out for us the different sort of cohorts of people who are getting that money. All right. So for starters, the Olympics are an extraordinarily expensive affair. And there's this dynamic, what I call etch-a-sketch economics, whereby during the bid phase of the Olympics are only supposed to cost this much. You put it on your etch-a-sketch, you say, hey, public, look, it's only going to cost, in the case of Tokyo, $7.3 billion. But then once you actually get handed the Olympics by the International Olympic Committee, you shake up that etch-a-sketch, write a brand new number on it. In this case, in Tokyo, we're looking at $30 billion being spent on the Tokyo Olympics. Now, that's just to get the games to happen. By, by, by whom? Who spends that money? All but $6.7 billion of that $30 billion is public money, which is to say taxpayer money. And that's pretty par for the course, to be honest. When you look at most Olympic Games, they're essentially purchased by the taxpayer, and they're there for corporations to kind of come along and make money off them. That's the general dynamic that undergirds them. So who's going to make the money? That's another one of your elements of your question. Well, for starters, the broadcasters of the Olympics, they stand to do quite well. The International Olympic Committee as well. They've got more than a billion dollars in their coffers, their their, um, reserves at all times. And so we're talking in these games around 5 billion or so in broadcast revenues will be distributed to the IOC and other entities. They like to tell us that they spread them around to the wider Olympic movement. That's what they call it, the Olympic movement. But a really important study out of Ryerson University found recently that compared the amount that actual Olympic athletes get from the revenues of the Olympics to other sports, like from the NBA or the National Football League, National Hockey League, or the English Premier League of Soccer, football in in England. And they found with those other leagues, the athletes get around 45 to 60% of the revenues that are brought in by their sport. With the Olympics, it's only 4.1%. 46 to 60 or 45 to 60 compared to 4.1%. So the money does not necessarily go directly to athletes. And that's why you're seeing a lot more athletes starting to organize in the Olympic space. People from track and field, people from swimming, starting these organizational bodies that kind of resemble independent unions. that are trying to fight back and claw back some of this money because it tends to go to the International Olympic Committee and well-connected political and economic elites in each host. And how much of this, you know, capitalist driver is part of why we see the Olympics move from city to city, which has devastating effects on the infrastructure, the houseless population, etc. People who don't have the resources and who are forced out of areas where there's just this enormous amount of construction and building that just goes by the wayside, you know, once these temporary events are done. Yeah, that's such a great and important question. So for starters, if I may just say that 
no matter where the Olympics happen, there tends to be at least four negative externalities, downsides, negative underbellies of the Olympics. And that is overspending, which we've talked about. Uh, that is the displacement and eviction that you're talking about there. There is the greenwashing that is endemic to the Olympics as well, talking a big green game, but not actually following through. And then there's the militarization of public space around the Olympics. It's become such a large spectacle that local security forces basically use it in order to get all the weapons that they'd ever want to get and special laws to suppress dissent during that they'd never be able to get during normal political times. So why don't we just put it in one place, for example? I think it's kind of ghosting behind your question there, Emma. And the answer is exactly what you're talking about. Capital accumulation. The International Olympic Committee is this band of peripatetic elites that definitely don't want to keep it in one place. That's part of the fun for them. Also with the corporate sponsors, who, by the way, give about 18% of all revenues to the International Olympic Committee, they use the Olympics as a way of grooming potential hires down the line, partying with their friends and that kind of thing. Why would they want to give it up and have it in the same place, like boring old Athens or something like that? Sometimes people will suggest Athens, even though it's not clear that actually the people of Athens would even want the Olympics after the debacle of 2004, where they way overspent and you have a herd of white elephant stadiums sitting there unused. And so I think to really directly answer your question, it's because of the International Olympic Committee has no interest in anchoring it somewhere. It's much more fun to zip around the world with all of your IOC members. I'll just say as a sort of counterpoint to the fact that the athletes barely get anything, if you're on the International Olympic Committee's executive committee, uh, their board, you get $900 a day in per diem only. That's not to mention the five-star hotels, everything else. You're stacking up $900 a day. We're just sitting in the crowd, maybe snoozing away the afternoon watching a sport. So that is because of all that, you've seen this real rise in dissent against the Olympics. In Tokyo, we're definitely seeing it. Some 80% of the population plus don't want the Olympics this summer, but it's even beyond Tokyo because of the problems that you're alluding to. So, and what we talk about, I mean, the when you're explaining like, you know, the amount of public funds that go into this and how the NBC in this instance gets five, $5 billion. You know, the public spends $35 billion, essentially. NBC gets $5 billion. I would imagine you have uh, a tremendous amount of real estate interests that are local, but who knows what relationships they have with other, you know, real estate. They're making hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars as well. It, it just reminds me of like my, basically my daughter's business that she got going, which is I buy her clothes. She sells them on Depop and she thinks that she's, you know, some type of business mogul. And I'm like, <laughs> you're, I'm just, it's just a transfer of money. I'm just giving you money. You're just going through the exercise of selling the money I gave you for maybe a little bit less money. And then you're just pocketing it. And that sort of feels like what this is. Even before we get into all of the sort of ancillary ills that it creates and displacement that it creates that and, and essentially scarring of the development of cities that it creates. Mm hmm. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I hadn't quite thought of it like that before. You know, I'm talking to you from Portland, Oregon, and just up the road from where I live in Vancouver in Canada, I interviewed an activist there back in 2009 called Am Johal is his name. And he said at the time, he said, the Olympics are a corporate franchise that you buy with public money. And I think that's kind of underneath what you're saying there. It's a corporate benefit to the Olympics, 
but it's bought with public money or in the case of your family with your money. And that money that the corporations benefit from, that doesn't stay in the local community. That gets leaked out to these corporate sponsors who are worldwide corporate sponsors. I mean, we're talking about like Airbnb, Coca-Cola, Alibaba, these international firms that are leaking the money that they make out from their pole position at the Olympic Games. And so more and more people are waking up to this. And that's why the Olympics are having a harder time locating in particular cities, because nowadays, whenever some elites in a city decide to put a bid forth, you basically have a bunch of activists standing up saying, wait a second, we heard about these Olympics. Now, to also to your point about developers, you're absolutely right. that They stand to benefit massively. Let's just, again, look at Tokyo for a second, since that's on everyone's horizon here. And when they built the new national stadium for the Olympics in Tokyo, they actually had to adjust the local laws because previously you could only build up 15 meters. It was an old imperial law, so you didn't dishonor the empire. Well, when they wanted to build this national stadium, it was going to be 80 meters tall. And so they actually had to change the law. Well, who benefited from that? Again, well-connected developers who could build up with the structures that they already owned uh, and stretch more rent out of their spaces that they own. And so, again, this is a corporate franchise bought with public money, as Amjo Hall said way back in 2009. Much like the Olympians who came before them, the Unfucking the Republic podcast is a new amateur competitor in the field looking to show off their skills, make a name for themselves, and potentially cash in on some brand-friendly sponsorships, all while inspiring and delighting their fans and foes alike. The UNFTR team has been training for this moment for years, and now they have just exploded onto the international scene with their insightful analysis, unflinching criticism, and swearing. They're clearly the new darlings of political podcasts, and they are well on their way to bringing glory back to their nation, as is basically their mission statement and podcast title all wrapped into one. Now, to get even more meta, Unfucking the Republic occasionally steps back from their deep dive episodes to take a look at some current events, and their most recent of these was an Olympics-style competition of their own in which they pit the governors of Florida, Georgia, and Texas against one another to determine which is the stupidest white guy our country has to offer, which I must say is quite a feat, as we have an incredibly deep bench of stupid white guys on our roster. So, if you haven't given Unfucking the Republic a chance yet, now is clearly the time to get into the spirit of the games and give them a try. Find them wherever you get your podcast by searching for UNFTR or by clicking through on the link in our show notes. You were going to hear Shakari Richardson's first name a lot at the Tokyo Olympics. Richardson announced her arrival at the U.S. Olympic track and field trials last month, winning the women's 100-meter in dominant fashion, her long orange hair blazing down the track. She was America's best hope to win 100-meter gold since Gail Devers did it in 1996. Her style and swagger have earned comparisons to another American great, 100-meter world record holder Florence Griffith Joyner. I'm not trying to be the next Flojo, Richardson, a Dallas native, recently told D Magazine. I am trying to be the one and only Shakari Richardson. But Richardson's Olympic dream just disappeared, faster than she churns down the straightaway in a development that shocked and saddened fans of track and field and the Olympics. 
The U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, or USADA, announced Friday morning that Richardson had accepted a one-month suspension after testing positive for cannabis, a substance that remains, even in the face of widespread legalization and mainstream acceptance, banned by the World Anti-Doping Code as a substance of abuse. The positive test disqualified her Olympic trials win, so she will not be able to run in the individual Olympic 100-meter race in Tokyo. Richardson could still be named to the 4x100-meter relay team, a relatively small consolation for an athlete who could have threatened a world record in her sport's fastest, most anticipated race. Richardson's suspension is the rare Olympic drug scandal where everyone loses. The Games will be without a charismatic star and a signature event. Her potential showdown with Jamaica's Shelly Ann Fraser-Price, who won the 100-meter at both the Beijing and Rio Games, and in early June clocked the second fastest women's 100-meter in history, 10.63 seconds, created a compelling storyline. The Olympics lose out, track and field, a sport seemingly forever tainted by drug scandals of the raw performance-enhancing kind or not, loses out, fans lose out, even her opponents lose out. Sure, the path to a medal becomes easier without Richardson in the field, but any win will forever be accompanied by a sort of hidden asterisk. What, history will wonder, would have happened if Richardson had raced? Usually these suspensions come with a ready-made villain. Cheater, we can scream. But Richardson took no steroids. She said in a Today Show interview Friday morning that she turned to marijuana to cope with the news that her biological mother had died. Richardson was raised by her grandmother, whom she poignantly hugged in the stands after her trials victory, and also by her aunt. Her situation has drawn sympathy for good reason. An Olympic gold combined with a fun-loving personality that fits the celebrity mold could have enriched Richardson. That opportunity is gone. The presence of marijuana on the World Anti-Doping Agency's banned substance list has long been controversial. Canadian snowboarder Ross Rebliotti was originally stripped of his 1998 Olympic gold medal after testing positive for THC, but that decision was overturned since it wasn't on the banned substance list at the time. USADA singles out three reasons why cannabinoids are banned. Athletes could endanger themselves and others because of slower reaction times and poor executive function and decision-making. Marijuana can be performance-enhancing for some athletes in sports disciplines, and the use of illicit drugs that are harmful to health is not consistent with the athlete as a role model for young people around the world. None of these reasons seem to apply in Richardson's case. She endangered no one at the track. Quite the opposite, she distanced herself from the competition. The performance-enhancing benefits of marijuana are, if not specious, at least very much up for debate. A 2018 literature review published in the Clinical Journal of Sports Medicine, for example, said that although cannabis use is more prevalent in some athletes engaged in high-risk sports, there is no direct evidence of performance-enhancing effects in athletes. Even USADA's statement on Richardson's suspension acknowledges her use of cannabis occurred out of competition and was unrelated to sport performance. As for the moral high horse bit, can anyone reasonably argue in this day and age that an athlete using marijuana deserves a boot from the Olympics because such behavior is not consistent with the athlete as a role model for young people around the world? 
In a world where momentum for legalization is growing, it's legal in Oregon, where Richardson competed at trials. In a situation where someone may have turned to a legal substance to cope with grief? Come on. Yes, rules are rules. But no one who watched Richardson win at trials could possibly think that marijuana fueled her victory. Richardson has acknowledged her mistake, apologized, and will pay the harsh consequences. But sometimes, it would be nice for common sense to rule instead. Carrie Richardson, the U.S. women's track star, is not going to Tokyo Olympics. That's official today. U.S. track and field announcing that she will not compete in the 4x100 relay. Richardson, of course, lit the track on fire in the trial. She won the women's 100-meter dash. She then tested positive for the use of marijuana. She was apologetic and suspended by the U.S. Track and Field Association. But there was a possibility for completing in the Olympic relay because that event competition was outside the window of her suspension. But instead today, U.S. Track and Field saying, while U.S. Track and Field fully agrees the merit of the World Anti-Doping Agency rules related to THC should be reevaluated, it would be detrimental to the integrity of the U.S. Olympic team trials for track and field if U.S. ATF amended its policies following competition only weeks before the Olympic Games. All U.S. ATF athletes are equally aware of and must adhere to the current anti-doping code, and our credibility as the national governing body would be lost if rules were only enforced under certain circumstances. Joining me now, former NBA player Eitan Thomas, author of We Matter, Athletes and Activism, who has some very strong feelings about this. Eitan, I've been following this story, and I think that the... The mass opinion I saw is like, this is insane. This woman is obviously an incredible athlete. Marijuana is either legalized or decriminalized in tons of states. You can use it recreationally. These laws are outdated. But to get the final blow today, I just found myself feeling this like visceral rage at the decision. How are you feeling? I mean, I feel disappointed. You know, it's interesting. You, You said that you hear a lot of, you know, people saying how ridiculous it is. I kind of hear a lot of the opposite. I hear a lot of people saying, you know, the rules are the rules. She broke the rules. You know, never mind what happened to her personally. The rules are the rules. And it's interesting because a lot of those same people who are the rules are the rules crowd are the same people who had so much trouble following the health guidelines during a national pandemic to be able to just wear a mask. It's really interesting that happens. But, you know, there's a lack of compassion that is happening right now. And, you know, to understand what she was dealing with. And people say, well, you have to take her personal situation out of it. Well, I don't think you do. You know, she just lost her mother. I mean, you know, you can tell even during the race, she ran up to the, to the crowd and fell into her grandmother's arms. I mean, it, th- this type of situation should make you reevaluate if this rule should even be a rule in the first place. And what she did, you know, be- before the, her, her, her trials, before her race, didn't in no way, shape or fashion help her when, you know, you know, run that the 10.6, you know, um, you know, right. uh, time that she ran. It, it was not a performance enhancer. It didn't assist her anyway. And it has to be evaluated. But this the situation that happens like this, hopefully the Olympic Committee will then start looking at it and start to reevaluate to see if this should even be the rule in the first place. Yeah, there's a, it's a good point. I mean, there's what this line stuck out to me in the track and field statement today was the, when they called it the current anti doping code. And it's like, okay, right. It, it, invoking that term, and I understand that 
you know, there's more banned substances than just substances that are performance enhancing. But when you use that term, it's like she wasn't cheating. She was using right. a recreational drug that's no more dangerous on the whole than alcohol, probably less dangerous, honestly, to, she says, cope with the, the awful, you know, grief of her mother's loss. Like, just in a completely right. different category. It just rubbed me the wrong way to read that word in that context. Oh, definitely. I mean, it, it doesn't apply to this situation. And when you're looking at the different things that she could have done in this situation, and it, it really speaks to a bigger topic of being able to view athletes as humans. And the fact is, a lot of times, Nobody cares. Nobody cares what you're going through. Nobody cares what you're dealing with. You know, if you're Naomi Osaka and you're having all this depression and anxiety, nobody cares. You're just supposed to just, you know, talk to the media. That's your job and that's what you have to do. And that's the part where hopefully this is another situation where people can see that athletes are human. Athletes deal with tragedy and still have to perform at an optimal level. So, you know, that's one of the things that kind of you know, when I was seeing all of the comments on social media and a lot of the comments, they, I got to tell you, they honestly surprised me. A lot of the talking heads and, you know, in the sports world, when they were covering this subject, it really surprised me because, you know, they talked about athletes as if they were robots. You know, they're not supposed to have any type of feeling and none of your feelings matter. And, you know, hopefully this can allow people to see that there's something wrong with that type of mentality. I want to just quickly play. Uh, Richardson was on the Today Show on Friday where she talked about this. I found it uh, really powerful. Take a listen. As much as I'm disappointed, I know that I don't represent myself. I represent a community that has shown me great support, great love. And to y'all, I, I failed y'all. And so I apologize for the fact that I didn't know how to control my emotions or deal with my emotions. I just say, don't judge me because I am human. I'm you. I just happen to run a little faster. I like that line. I am human. It also strikes me here that more broadly, in whether it's U.S. track and field or the, the IOC or whoever, like as the status of marijuana changes in both a social and legal sense, all these leagues and all of these athletic bodies are going to have to update the rules. Oh, yeah, well, they'll have to. I mean, it's. You know, it's, the, it's the, the contradiction of, especially here in the States, where you have opioids being passed out like candy in the NFL for decades and nobody having a problem with it in the NBA as well, you know, in different professional leagues, you know, but then you'll have something like proven medicinal purpose with cannabis and it'll just be frowned upon. But that goes into a much bigger topic, yeah. you know, in, in, as far as the way that it's criminalizes in society. I mean, so many people right now, you know, for nonviolent crimes in jail for a nickel bag of weed is ridiculous. So it's a reflection of the bigger problem. We have discussed on this show time and time again how athletes speaking out moves mountains for change, even when white America continually pushes back, like in the case of Mahmoud Abdul Raouf. In the Olympics, the most notable protest came in 1968 at the Mexico Games where Tommy Smith and John Carlos protesting the racial injustices black people face in this country. Third place medalist Peter Norman of Australia supported them and asked how he could help, which makes the IOC or International Olympic Committee's latest decision flat out infuriating. They announced that athletes will continue to face punishment for protesting or demonstrating while on the medal podium 
at official ceremonies, or on the field of play. The IOC said that it surveyed more than 3,500 athletes over the past year, and that 70% said it was not appropriate to demonstrate or express their views on the field of play, or at the opening or closing ceremony. This means raising a fist or taking a knee is banned. Making note of the injustices minorities face, banned. Bringing awareness to the unfair shake folks have because of the color of their skin, banned. The IOC has not said what consequences athletes might face for protesting, but a proportionate range of punishments will be drafted before the games, said Kirsty Coventry, who represents athletes on the IOC executive board. The thing is, Karan J. Phillips of Deadspin put it rather, well, in plain and simple terms. If you were ever dumb enough to believe that racism was just an American problem, then this is proof that people all across this globe hate black people. Hammer throw gold medalist Gwen Berry raised her fist, uh, reminiscent of John Carlos. Gwen Berry, who protested at the Pan American Games in Lima, Peru, told USA Today last summer, for Olympic athletes, we literally only get one chance every four years, Berry said. People work their tails off for years to get to that moment. So it's important to them. If they want to speak in that moment, they should have the right to because they worked for that. Kneeling and fist raising will lead to punishment, which is, I guess, the equivalent to when Heisman winners, coaches and programs get their trophy slash wins vacated in college as if we didn't watch them win, Phillips wrote. The United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee told their athletes, while we support your right to demonstrate peacefully in support of racial and social justice, we can't control the actions others may take in response. What the IOC doesn't realize is that this decision will just fuel the athletes that were considering taking part in a demonstration. History has proven that it will be on their side. At worst, they can be stripped of their medals that they won. And at best, they'll be immortalized like the pioneers that came before. So No Olympics LA started in the spring of 2017. We formed through the Housing and Homelessness Committee of the Democratic Socialists of America Los Angeles chapter. And, you know, there were essentially a few of us, including myself, who were already organizing with other groups in LA and were part of other organizations. I'm a member of the Los Angeles Tenants Union. Some other folks were part of LA Can, who are based in Skid Row, and a few of the kind of original coalition partners and members of No Olympics. And through the work that we were doing in our own communities and with some other organizations, we we were just hearing a lot about how badly the Olympics were going to affect the work that we were doing, in particular hearing about the impact that the Olympics had on poor communities, particularly around policing and displacement. You know, I personally, I was not in LA for the 1984 Olympics, but a lot of folks we organize with were partners and comrades who who live and organize on and around Skid Row, really pointed to the connection between police militarization and kind of the, you know, the war on drugs and under Daryl Gates, who was like the notoriously monstrous racist LAPD chief in the 80s. So like leading into the 84 games, for example. So Daryl Gates, you know, because of like a lot of high profile, like well-publicized incidents around police brutality and like some incredibly like ugly 
racist comments that he had made at press conferences was a little bit on the chopping block in the lead up to the 84 games. And then as that came up, that shifted into like, okay, well, now you have unlimited funds and authority to do whatever you want to clean the city up. And so that meant like additional patrols on Skid Row and aggressive sweeps. That meant doing a lot of the stuff we see around like gang injunctions and and kind of like the indiscriminate policing of, in particular, like black and brown men living in certain areas because of, you know, quote, like suspected gang involvement. That kind of all started in the lead up to the 84 games. Folks who, you know, who were directly experience the results of that have such a different memory of 84 compared to kind of the Eric Garcetti's and the Casey Wasserman's, the kind of like rich kids on the West side who were like, this was really fun. You know, Casey Wasserman got to run in the torch relay with OJ Simpson. Whereas uh, a lot of the, you know, operation hammer, you know, war on drugs, you know, efforts by the LAPD to really to terrorize black and Brown communities in LA. There's like one kind of famous story about, you know, a SWAT team went to a house in South Central and used a tank with a battering ram to kind of knock down a house and found there was like a young mom with her kids eating ice cream. And that tank and that battering ram was purchased as part of the expanded funding for the 84 Olympics. So, you know, that had been sort of percolating for a couple of years as Eric Garcetti was was angling for the Olympic bid. And then in spring 2017, a group of us met in, in DSALA and started talking about what would it look like to create that organized opposition. We had some contact with folks in No Boston and No Chicago who gave us some sort of background and advice on their successful campaigns to kick the Olympic bids out. At that point, we knew it was a little bit late in the game, um, but still thought, you know, it was worthwhile. And even just the process of bringing together this coalition of groups would be important. I think the most important thing off the bat was that this was a no, this was not a make them better. And this was also specifically about the impact to to poor communities. So this was not about like the budget, basically, because all of the conversations in LA up until that point had really been focused on the budget and profits. And we were saying, you know, this is really about what this is going to do to our city. Like, what is the vision of LA that we want to push for in 2028? Is it creating a playground for rich tourists and, you know, corporate sponsors? Or is it having a a city that's equitable and comfortable for everyone to live in? I know you all have connected a lot, as you mentioned, with organizers locally and with organizers internationally. And that there was a trip to Tokyo to meet with no Olympics Japan organizers. It was two years ago, which feels like a very long time ago. And also not long ago at all. But I think first of all, you know, we were there really in solidarity with with the Hunger and Nokai, who are the lead organizers in Tokyo against the 2020 Olympics. And they're a group of folks predominantly and, and led by unhoused folks in Tokyo. They're really, really amazing organizers. And the kind of mantra was, we can still stop them. It was end of July, so the Tokyo 2020 Olympics were originally supposed to open, I think, July 23rd, 2020. So we were there around, you know, a a few days before July 23rd, 2019, and then, you know, a few days after that. You know, I think since every opposition group has started this campaign, there's always this idea of, like, this is a done deal, and it's too late, and you can't stop them. But I think what last year showed pretty definitively, this is all made up. 
nothing is actually set in stone. It's just like, is there a force strong enough to stop the IOC's plans? But the Olympics are not, they're not natural, they're not inevitable, which is kind of the same, you know, framework we use to talk about gentrification, for example. It's like, that's kind of one of the biggest barriers is just making it clear, like, yeah, these things are stoppable. It's not like the rain or something. It's like, you can this didn't exist at one point. It doesn't have to exist. It, you know, it doesn't have to look exactly the way it looks now. Like this, these are all decisions that have been made at some point and they can be unmade. And then the trip itself, you know, primarily like led and organized by folks in Tokyo, as well as other parts of Japan. There are some, a group of amazing organizers from Osaka who, you know, who are also part of that. We got to meet folks from Nagano, which also, you know, had previously hosted the Olympics in Japan. And that was really interesting there were folks from Paris, there were folks from London, there were folks from Jakarta who are kind of staring down a potential Olympic bid, folks who are in Rio. You know, there was a contingent who also went to Fukushima to see up close, you know, what that devastation looked like and, you know, the the sort of really stark chasm between what the media and the government and the Olympic boosters were saying in terms of like, these are the recovery Olympics and these are the Olympics that will kind of celebrate the end of this crisis in Fukushima and then being there and seeing like, oh, this is not even like remotely re- like recovered. People are still really suffering here. And this is all a bit of a Potemkin village set up to, you know, the Olympics to like make it look like, okay, this is great. And now we don't have to give anyone government benefits who, you know, is suffering from thyroid cancer as a result of radiation. And we don't have to help people who have been displaced find new homes or fix their homes or give them medical care because everything is recovered. And I think, you know, a lot of us too are experiencing that firsthand in our own cities through the, you know, with COVID, like this period that we're in now in a lot of ways where it's like, it's over and everything is recovered. But in a lot of ways, it's like, well, is it recovered though? Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, I think there's been a lot of talk about people understand the push to cancel the Olympics in the wake of a global pandemic, or a lot of people do, you know? And so a lot of the talk around the, should this be happening right now, is focused solely on the pandemic. But what was the main thing? I mean, you just mentioned a lot of things. But what was the main thing that organizers were concerned about these Olympics before the pandemic? Because I think it's important for everyone to know that, you know, this organizing didn't pop up right when COVID did, like this predates COVID. So yeah, so I mean, I think starting with the 2011 Fukushima Daiichi earthquake and nuclear disaster, which was a, a massive earthquake that led to a tsunami that caused a nuclear reactor to melt down in Fukushima, which just completely devastated that entire area. Tens of thousands of people were displaced, still are displaced. The people who are still living there are regularly exposed to just like insane levels of radioactivity. You know, because of how the nuclear reactor melted down, like all of the soil in that area is contaminated with nuclear waste. You know, the Olympic boosters also just dumped a lot of the remaining nuclear waste into the Pacific Ocean and the greenwashing, too, because at the same time that was going on. You know, the Olympic organizers were continually promising, like, these are the most green Olympics ever, using, like, endangered rainforest wood to build new stadiums. So keeping in mind, too, with Fukushima, that displacement is a big part of that, too, right? Because, again, the people who who were displaced, who were kind of in this limbo of not knowing, like, where they were going to go, if they could come back, when they would be able to come back, and then people who didn't leave, um, who were staying, but who, you know, don't have the homes that they had, but don't really have anywhere else to go. 
So Fukushima was one big thing. And then Tokyo organizers, who again, you know, are led by folks who are unhoused. And so part of what they were seeing was the really, you know, accelerated policing and brutalization and like evictions of where they were staying. Like police started clearing out those parks. And it all starts with the privatization of public space. You know, so spaces where poor people are typically allowed to exist and, you know, enjoy their lives and eat and in some cases sleep become privatized, become spaces that are more exclusive and then therefore lead to policing. So as the Olympics were approaching, as these sites were becoming designated for tourist zones, police started coming in and really cracking down on poor folks who were staying there. There were a lot of like media headlines about some individuals whose homes were demolished and who were displaced for both the 1964 Tokyo Olympics and the 2020 Olympics. But pretty much every single one of those articles missed that we didn't really get to dig into until we were in Tokyo was that it's specifically because those people live in public housing. It's because, and that's something we see in every Olympics too, including in LA, it's always the people who are displaced and the types of housing that are targeted for demolition in order to make way for Olympic developments are the housing that the most poor people live in. It's public housing in Tokyo. It's Skid Row in Los Angeles. It's in South Central LA in Los Angeles. It's the favelas in Rio. So those were the issues um, that that folks in Tokyo were grappling with. They also, something that was interesting to see, like the there was a big sort of like uproar, I think last year when they were talking about allowing the use of Japan's imperial flag in the Olympics. So kind of the you know, the role that like nationalism and imperialism play in these games and heightening those sentiments, a lot of people were really concerned about. I mean, that's obviously something to be concerned about here as well. Is, you know, we've seen such a, a really sharp rise in right-wing nationalism and, and how these types of events can really heighten that. You know, and those continue to be concerns in Tokyo along with the pandemic. Like, how is the pandemic accelerating and heightening those in the same way in the U.S.? It's like, you know, there's the pandemic, but it's which is you know a new thing but a lot of the specific harms of the pandemic in the united states and you know in, in the city that i live in los angeles for example it's like it's just accelerating and heightening the inequality that existed We've just heard clips today, starting with CNBC laying out the history of ballooning costs of the Olympic Games. Today Explained explained the pandemic concerns and ultimate decision to ignore the dangers for the sake of corporate profit. Citations Needed highlighted the pattern of public funding of private profit ventures. The Majority Report looked at the role of elites in the Olympic Committee with motivation to maintain the status quo for themselves. Time's top stories laid out the absurdity of the suspension of Shikari Richardson, while All In with Chris Hayes highlighted the human aspect of the Richardson suspension. TYT Sports explained the dynamics of athletes being banned from using their platform to protest during the Olympics, and Burn It All Down spoke with a No Olympics activist about why the reasons to stop the Olympics predate the pandemic by a wide margin. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from By All Means 
means necessary, looking at multiple aspects of racism that continue to show through the cracks in the Olympic facade. To hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Allison from Boulder. I have a little sort of related piece about pronunciation of names. My last name has four letters, but still most people can't spell or pronounce it correctly. It is an uncommon Irish name. However, it doesn't bother me when people mispronounce it. I have no problem correcting people. My problem stems from when people know I have disabilities. My name is already hard for them to deal with, so they will sometimes argue with me that my own pronunciation is wrong. My second grade school year was the biggest nightmare of my entire life because I corrected the teacher on the pronunciation of my name and she was so offended by a disabled kid correcting her that she targeted me for abuse for the rest of the entire year. I was kept in from lunch and recess almost every day and constantly humiliated. I'm sure it would have happened anyway, this is common treatment for students with disabilities, but because my name was the catalyst, I have pretty extreme triggers around that. I know this isn't the same as what people of color go through, but in a way it has a similar invalidating effect. When someone tells you your name is too hard to pronounce and they shouldn't have to try, or when they correct you on your own pronunciation of your name, that is a major display of privilege and basically says they have more power over our identity than we do. Our names are very personal to us in ways that some people who haven't experienced oppression may not completely understand. Thanks for the awesome show. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. Now, to wrap up today, I want to put a little bit of a finer point on the Shikari Richardson story. What you didn't hear in today's show was a big analysis of race disparities for that story in particular, or a comparison between Shikari Richardson's treatment and Michael Phelps' treatment. And you may have even seen that come across your social media feeds. Of course, hot takes went viral first to the point that they actually needed to be fact-checked. So to give a quick summary on on how they were fact-checked, people began writing, oh, so Shikari Richardson, a black woman, is being suspended for smoking pot with, as a side note, all these extenuating circumstances. And yet Michael Phelps, didn't he smoke some pot a few years ago, but he still got to compete in the Olympics? What's up with that? The implication being pretty obvious. And... The fact-checking on that is that uh, it's a lot messier than simple racial disparity. The first is timing, and the second is testing. So, to start with the second, Michael Phelps didn't actually test positive for THC, and the second, with timing, it didn't happen right before the Olympics. If it had, if he had tested positive and had been before the Olympics, we could hope and presume that he would have gotten a very similar suspension. As it played out, he just had a picture taken of him smoking pot. It wasn't right before the Olympics, so the suspension 
you know, had it kicked in, wouldn't have affected his Olympics anyway. So he just ended up losing some sponsorship deals. That's how that played out. With a very cursory surface-level analysis, many may think then, well, okay, race wasn't a factor. We don't have to think about it anymore. Any accusations of race being involved in this story whatsoever should be shunted aside and uh, possibly ridiculed. That is not what I'm going to do. I actually want to use this as an example of how, in a very messy, complicated, and nuanced way, racism and the legacy of white supremacy continues to reach into the present from the past, impact people of color disproportionately, yes, but impact everyone negatively. So perhaps race had absolutely no bearing on the Shikari Richardson suspension. Let's assume that's the case. Well, it turns out that white supremacy is still at the heart of her suspension because that is the only reason that marijuana was made illegal in the first place and continues to be so. To illustrate this, I have a bonus clip for you from none other than that liberal rag, the Business Insider. Weird orgies, wild parties, roots in hell. How did marijuana get such a bad rap? The answer is simple. Racism. As early as the 1800s, there were no federal restrictions on the sale or possession of cannabis in the U.S. Hemp fiber from the plant was used to make clothes, paper, and rope. Sometimes it was used medicinally, but as a recreational drug, it wasn't that widespread. A New York Times article from 1876 even cites the positive use of cannabis to cure a patient's dropsy, basically swelling from an accumulation of fluid. In the early 1900s, an influx of Mexican immigrants came to the U.S., fleeing political unrest in their home country. With them, they brought the practice of smoking cannabis recreationally, and it took off. The Spanish word for the plant started to be used more often, too. Marijuana, or as it was spelled at that time, marijuana with an H. This is when the more sensational headlines about the drug began to appear. In 1936, a propaganda film called Reefer Madness was released. In the movie, teenagers smoke weed for the first time, and this leads to a series of horrific events involving hallucination, attempted rape, and murder. Much of the media portrayed it as a gateway drug. Marijuana, a powerful excitant, produces unpredictable emotional results. But its greatest danger lies in the fact that it is a stepping stone to the harder drugs, such as morphine and heroin. The following year, in 1937, the Marijuana Tax Act was passed. Cannabis sales were now taxed. Part of the reason this act was passed was because of all the fear-mongering going on at the time. And a huge instigator of that fear-mongering was the man behind the Marijuana Tax Act, Harry Anslinger. Anslinger was named the commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics during the Prohibition era. But once national prohibition ended in 1933, Anslinger turned his focus to marijuana. This is when racism and xenophobia really kicked in. Harry Anslinger took the scientifically unsupported idea of marijuana as a violence-inducing drug, connected it to black and Hispanic people, and created a perfect package of terror to sell to the American media and public. 
By emphasizing the Spanish word marijuana instead of cannabis, he created a strong association between the drug and the newly arrived Mexican immigrants who helped popularize it in the States. He also created a narrative around the idea that cannabis made black people forget their place in society. He pushed the idea that jazz was evil music created by people under the influence of marijuana. But these racist ideas didn't just influence the media's portrayal or the public's perception of the drug. The discrimination they encouraged was evident in real numbers. In the first full year after the Marijuana Tax Act was passed, black people were about three times more likely to be arrested for violating narcotic drug laws than whites, and Mexicans were nearly nine times more likely to be arrested for the same charge. By 1952, the Boggs Act was passed. This made sentencing for drug convictions mandatory. A first offense for possession could land you two to five years in prison and a fine up to $2,000. Through the 1960s and 70s, weed smoking took on a new perception through the counterculture movement. Young white people resisted mainstream culture and powerful institutions. This was the era of hippies, beatniks, and flower power. But despite all the peace and love, laws continued to emphasize the severity of the drug. The Controlled Substances Act of 1970, passed under President Nixon, public enemy number one. repealed the Marijuana Tax Act and instead made cannabis a Schedule I drug, the most serious class. Schedule I drugs are considered to have a high potential for abuse and addiction with no medical use. Other examples of Schedule I drugs are heroin, LSD, and ecstasy. Classifying cannabis as a Schedule One drug has been highly debated since then. And marijuana is not a Schedule One any more than a hedgehog is an apex predator. But to this day, it remains in that category, and criminalization still disproportionately affects minority groups in the U.S. The ACLU reported that in 2010, black people were four times more likely to be arrested for marijuana than white people, even though both groups consume marijuana at about the same rate. Some states have taken action to reduce this type of criminalization. Nine states and Washington, D.C. have legalized the recreational use of cannabis. And 29 states allow some form of medical marijuana. San Francisco recently dropped thousands of marijuana-related convictions, and Seattle plans to do the same. But this doesn't change the federal restrictions, and Attorney General Jeff Sessions seems hell-bent on enforcing those federal rules. Good people don't smoke marijuana. Kansas State Representative Stephen Alford made a case against legalizing cannabis by referring to the racist rhetoric of the Anslinger era. What you really need to do is go back in the 30s, the African-Americans, they, they, they were basically users and they, and they uh, basically responded the worst of all those drugs just because their uh, character make them genetics. And we're still seeing a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. So while some things have changed on the state level, some politicians are sticking with the fear-mongering and racism playbook. Even though Pew Research polls show that 61% of Americans now approve of nationwide legalization, up from 16% about 30 years ago. Popular opinion suggests it's high time to reconsider federal laws. So as I said before, 
Maybe race had no bearing whatsoever on Shikari Richardson, and let's even imagine a scenario in which it was a white contestant who was suspended. That white contestant in this hypothetical scenario would have been the victim of a legacy of white supremacy. If you want to do a deep dive on this, I recommend one of my most recent reads, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together by Heather McGee. It could alternately be titled, Why Racism Means We Can't Have Nice Things. And one of the primary examples is how white people decided to deprive themselves of beautiful, well-maintained public pools because they refuse to share them with black people. And now today, we don't have beautiful, well-maintained public pools, by and large, and it is because of the legacy of racism. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, Act segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support, or from right inside the Apple Podcast app if that's your style. That's how you can get instant access to our impressively good bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all regular episodes. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on our website and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.